You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. That to me is the biggest risk is to just jump into something because you had FOMO and you had to get in on something and then you have no idea why you have a wallet or this NFT or what it means to you and you don't know what to do with it. Investing in the market is about more than just money. It's about investing in your future and your choices. It's investing in you. If you're looking to optimize your investment strategy, visit planefb.com slash hermoney. You can schedule a free appointment with an advisor today. Hey, everybody, I'm Jean Chatsky. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. We heard from so many of you after our Crypto 101 episode, which was episode number 303, to be precise, where we just explained all things digital currency and blockchain. But the question on your minds wasn't about crypto. It was about NFTs, non-fungible tokens. But what exactly are they? Well, NFTs are original digital works of art that exploded onto the market during the pandemic and served for a way for artists to be able to make and sell original works digitally. They are crypto adjacent, which is the best way I can think of to describe the fact that they are secured using the same blockchain technology used in crypto. And in order to purchase an NFT, you need crypto to buy it. These days, everyone from famous musicians like Jay-Z to our favorite visual artists on Instagram seem to be making and or minting NFTs. The artist Beeple made headlines in 2021 when his NFT sold at Sotheby's for a jaw-dropping $69 million. Then the NFT collective CryptoPunks sold the rare ape NFT for $10 million in December. The new asset class has clearly swept the art world, but it's still something that many of us aren't exactly sure how to define. And even if we can muster a reasonable definition, we don't have any idea how to go about investing in it or whether or not we'd even want to. Because let's face it, sometimes the hottest new trend is here to stay and sometimes it's gone tomorrow and you're so much better off if you steered clear. I'm excited that today we're going to answer all of these questions with the help of Kelly Grayler. Kelly is co-founder and CEO of Alice Riot, which is a fine art licensing and Web3 consulting agency that connects brands, products, and experiences both in the real and virtual reality worlds with works by women contemporary artists. She is bullish on the metaverse, let's just put that out there, and is actively launching VR and NFT projects in partnership with women artists, brands, and fine art institutions. She is also the creator and the co-host of a forthcoming content series, WTAF, Women, Travel, Art, Food, four of my favorite things, by the way, and is the incoming president of the board of directors at the Goldstein Museum of Design at the University of Minnesota. She joins us today from her home near Minneapolis. Hey, Kelly, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Jean, for having me. I appreciate it. So let me just offer a confession. I just teed up my definition of NFTs as I understand them, but 
I'd really love to hear your definition because mine might not be completely accurate. I mean, you're not just an owner of NFTs, you're a creator. So you see it from all sides. What is an NFT? You know, I do see it from all sides and I tend to adhere to a particular definition from an art world perspective. The thing I would say quickly, though, is I think that the definition of what an NFT is is rapidly evolving. And it's evolving at the pace that the metaverse is evolving and virtual reality. So an NFT may be a piece of artwork that you acquire. But if you look increasingly at where the predictions are going from a metaverse perspective, an NFT could also be a pair of Nikes that you buy in Nike land that you put on your avatar. We are moving into a place where acquiring assets in a virtual reality is going to be not necessarily eclipsing, but getting pretty darn close to the size of markets that we see in real life. For one example, Meta has predicted that the fashion industry in virtual reality, meaning the clothes and accessories that you buy to dress your avatar, your avatar, not your real body. Right, not your, your real self, your avatar. I'm, I'm processing <laughs> this, all of this as you're saying it. Right. They're predicting that the virtual fashion world will be at $50 billion by 2030. 50 billion? So, 50 B, Bs. Yep. So, and so that's why I say when we talk about what an NFT is today, I would posit that it's very different from even where it was six months ago. And certainly as we are looking at it from an art world perspective, I would characterize a couple of things. Number one, I would say much of what you've seen out there defined as NFT art may or may not actually be art. It may be a digital JPEG that was created by someone who was having fun and wanted to test out dropping an NFT and see what happens. You may have digital artists, Beeple, you brought up as an example to that. You know, that's an example of someone who is an artist who works in digital as his primary medium. I've got some strong opinions about the Beeple drop. I really think that in terms of where we see the disparities for women in the art world, Christie's dropped the ball. They should have worked with a woman artist on that drop, but they went with a white male guy. But, you know, the point is, when we think about an NFT from an art world perspective, this is how we define it at Alice Riot. It's one of several things. And this is where there's so much potential and promise for what it can be. Because it's on the blockchain, because it is irrefutable, because it's transparent, these are qualities that you don't always have in the art world, in the real world. So we can think of an NFT in a couple of different ways. We think of it as a certificate of authenticity for an original work. So one of the examples I like to give is that one of my favorite contemporary living artists is a woman by the name of Maggie Hambling out of London. I acquired one of her original works as a gift to myself for my 50th birthday. So I have an original work of hers and it's hanging in my living room. Ideally, I would have loved to have received an NFT that came with that original work. And the NFT would be something that I could keep in my digital wallet and it would spell out specifically all of the information about that painting, when it was done, the materials used, who the creator is and is handling. But then it would also set some rules for me when I go to sell it on the secondary market. And that's where I think the real excitement is from an art world perspective. Because if you look at the traditional art world, artists are usually boxed out of secondary market sales. So like if one of Maggie Hambling's paintings sold at Sotheby's, mm -hmm. she's not getting paid at all on that. That's just how that has traditionally worked. If there was a smart contract, however, sitting in this NFT that said, if you put this on the secondary market, Kelly, to sell it, she's going to get an X percent royalty of that sale. 
that's where you start to see the opportunities for artists in terms of what they create, having provenance, having royalties built into what they do, starting to shut down that idea that someone can buy your original artwork for pennies and then turn around and sell it commercially and they keep all the money. It's leveling the playing field a little bit more for the artists. So that's the first way we would look at an NFT is a certificate of authenticity. The other thing it can be is it can be a digital limited edition print. And that's very typical in, in the traditional art world where maybe you can't afford an original work, but hey, you can get a, a limited edition print, museum quality, hang it in your house. You can look at an NFT drop as a numbered limited edition print. So you can have an original work out there. So it can be one or the other. It can be the same thing. Or in the case like you described, it can be something that was solely created to be an NFT by the artist. But I think in all three ways, what it does is it creates an opportunity to document in the smart contract what the rights are that you have as a collector and the artist has to that work once it goes digital. You know, it's an interesting way to think about it. I don't know that I have ever put that thought that artists don't get compensated on the second and the third and the fourth sale as these paintings and other works of art change hands for massive amounts, right? If you are a musician and your song is on Spotify, you get compensated for every download. Depending on how you negotiated your contract with the record label or with Spotify, et cetera. Yeah, this has been something that I think has been a long time coming since the onset of digital downloads and music. That was sort of, you know, the tipping point, I think, on a lot of this in terms of how technology can reward the artist in different ways that in the past they've just been boxed out. Where did it all start for you? How did you get here? Well, yeah. <laughs> so I got here because my my friend Kate Iverson, who is a painter here in Minneapolis and a gallerist, she's just a phenomenal contemporary art expert. She put a painting on Instagram uh, six years ago. And I, at the time, was inside corporate America. And I saw her post on Instagram. And I said, hey, I want that as a skirt. And so she went and printed some cheap fabric and had a skirt made for me. And that led to us having a conversation about just those disparities in the art world. I mean, we're still at a point right now where over 80% of all exhibits in museums in North America are by white male artists. And then you look at like, I'll give you another example. In 2020, the top 100 pieces of work sold at auction. And remember, artists largely don't get paid on those auction sales. But of the top 100 works sold at auction, only eight of them were by women artists. Only two of them were by living women artists. And only one of them was an artist of color, a female artist of color. So Kate and I started talking about how do we get more women to invest in women artists? How do we start to tackle this really, really big problem and do it you know, in a way that brings together our skills? We started with making apparel. So when we launched Alice Wright in 2018, we were an apparel company. We made skirts and dresses and silk scarves, and we built a lot of goodwill and a lot of people were interested, but it wasn't the right space for us because if I have huge respect for product makers, by the way, people who make apparel, that is a hard, hard business. and You've got to be in love with it. And we weren't in love with it. So this past year, we took a step back and said, what is it that we're really good at? And our purpose is the same. We want to help women artists grow. We want to encourage women to invest in women artists. We don't have to make the products to do that. 
So that's why we pivoted now and we're focused on art licensing. But we have to look at Web3 because here's the thing. I can take one of the artists that we represent and say, pitch her to a consumer brand and license her artwork to print it on products. Increasingly, those brands are saying, hey, can we have the digital rights to that too? Could we do an NFT integration for our customers? Because they're looking increasingly, again, back to that stat I told you about the fashion industry, they're looking at how do they create experiences for their customers in digital and in physical. And so we have to pay attention to all of this as we're representing artists, because our goal is we don't represent an artist and put her work into a gallery or a museum. We are looking at channels beyond the traditional art world to help her grow, which can be licensing. It can be custom commissions. It can be an NFT drop. So we're exploring all of this. And literally, we are like racing down the highway and we're still building the car. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like it. I'm going to just pause for a second there and ask you to define Web3. Because, you know, when you talk about the metaverse, when you talk about Web3, there are a lot of us who are still scratching our heads a little bit. You bet. And I want to give some credit to the women who have taught me what Web3 is. There is this great group out of Singapore called Untamed, and they are women in Web3. And it was founded by a number of women who actually work in the Asia Pacific region for Meta, also known as Facebook. And so... I learned a lot about this from that particular group. And very simply, what I would say is, if you look at the history of the internet, when it first started, Web 1 was all about being able to like transfer information. Right, it was, you've got mail, right? Yeah, exactly, right, that was Web 1. Web 2 was the ability to transact and do commerce. So when we think then about paid ads, and we think about online shopping experiences, and we think of those aspects. We think about online banking, the ability to transfer money like PayPal and Zella through your banks, et cetera. That's Web 2. And what Web 2 is, is you have middlemen, is the phrase. Yes. You've got the institutions that are the gatekeepers on transactions. The idea with Web 3 is you don't need the middlemen. It's decentralized. So you are able to transact directly exchange currencies with each other without having to go through a bank, without having to go through that third party. That's the promise of it. It's still the wild, wild west out there. And case in point, I've been involved now with a couple of NFT drops from an art world perspective where I'm like, oh boy, we're still actually more in like a web 2.5 space here because the people who are the early adopters on crypto, they can see the potential for this. They're not necessarily thinking about how do we bring everybody else along. Right. And so even getting someone to do their first NFT purchase, they're still thinking through the lens of how I play on the web today and and how does that experience then show up when I go to buy an NFT. And sometimes that user experience, I think, is getting lost in the mix with these developers. And so it's going to be clunky for a while. Well, that's exactly where I want to go with this conversation, because Tactically, there are a lot of steps to buying an NFT, and I've been playing around with this over the last couple of weeks, but I would love it. And look, playing around with it, that's a terrible thing to say because we're talking about real money here, right? We're talking about real money that I, you know, 
dollars used to buy Bitcoin or Ethereum or some other form of cryptocurrency that is now being put in a wallet and used to buy an NFT. I would like you to try to walk us through it. And I think we're going to have some success with this. But before I get there, let me just say that when I went into this, I was a bundle of nerves. I was, I didn't have any confidence that I knew what I was doing. I still don't have any confidence that I know what I'm doing when it comes to this new world. And the same is very much true of investing. Confidence is key. You have to have confidence in your ability and your knowledge and your strategy. So if you are listening and you're thinking, yeah, I'm just ready. I'm ready to do more with my investments. Then I would encourage you to visit edelmanfinancialengines.com slash hermoney. You can schedule a free appointment with an EFE financial advisor. And that means you can review your current situation with an expert and get tailored investment strategies to help build and grow and preserve your wealth. You can get started at planefe.com slash hermoney. Do it for your future and start talking to an advisor today. I am talking with Kelly Grayler, co-founder and CEO of Alice Riot. We are diving into all things NFTs. Okay, so questions. Let's get really, really tactical. First, is it safe? Is it safe to invest in an NFT? And let's just frame the question, is an NFT an investment? Because I have a beautiful painting on my wall that I love that I spent several thousand dollars for at an art fair in Philadelphia, right? Beautiful art fair, beautiful painting. I love this painting. Looking at it every day brings me happiness and calm. I would not call it an investment. I'm going to get a lot of use out of it. If I were to amortize the number of times that I looked at this thing and smiled, you know, it would come down to pennies. Am I going to be able to sell it at a profit, which is what I think we are talking about when we're talking about an investment? I have absolutely no idea. So are NFTs investments? I would say yes. And here's the thing. I would say that art is an investment. It's an intangible investment, though. You are investing in something from an emotional standpoint. And it's really hard to put a pin in what constitutes the value of an original work of art. I mean, there is a $70 billion industry out there that is focused on the transactions of fine art. There is a reason why Sotheby's and Christie's can command those types of prices. And you see the people who are willing to spend the money to do that. And there is a lot of opaqueness in the fine art world as well. So it can be really difficult to understand the transparency around a particular work of art and why it's valued a certain way. Art is something, though, that is, to me, it's an investment in culture, in history, in critique. Mm -hmm. And, you know, depending on what your lens is that you use to invest in art, that I think will define for you whether or not it's an investment. Uh, I look at the pieces that I have. Some of them, no, they're not investments. You know, they've got great stories I'm personally emotionally tied to. There are others. I have a Liechtenstein. I have a Maggie Hambling and I've got riders on those yeah. because I know that they carry significant value because the market has dictated that they have a value. And so when I think about the NFT space, 
I think that it's really hard and it is so noisy out there. I think there's a bubble that we're seeing in terms of valuations on some of these NFTs. You talked about Bored Ape, for instance. You know, they just launched their own token over the weekend and it's being driven by Silicon Valley. And so there's just this hype that's built around it. What I'm really interested in from an art world standpoint is getting more of the traditional art world people into the metaverse, into the crypto space to help with kind of leveling this out a bit and going, okay, this is how you should actually value this NFT or that NFT. It's really difficult to do that because you're completely relying right now on the hype of the people I call the crypto dudes yeah, who ne- don't necessarily have art world experience or any art collecting experience, but they're the ones that are setting prices on this that are just insane. So if it's an investment, then at this point, speculative. I would definitely say speculative, yes. Where and how do we buy an NFT? So the first thing you have to do is find the means to purchase the NFT and understand how that NFT operates on the blockchain. Now, what's interesting, I know you made a comment at the top of this that you need crypto to buy an NFT. That isn't necessarily the case. Ooh, okay, do tell. What it depends on is the blockchain platform that the NFT lives on and is built upon, okay? So you have, you know, we hear about Bitcoin. That's a blockchain. We hear about Ethereum, you know, Dogecoin, Stellar. There's all these different XLM. There are all these different blockchain platforms out there. The challenge that they have, and I I think this is important to anyone who's considering buying into NFTs to understand this, is that right now there is not a high degree of interoperability. Meaning if you start with Ethereum and you buy... NFTs in Ethereum, it's very difficult for you to move those NFTs around to a different blockchain. They don't intersect. They don't work well together. And interoperability is something we all, I think, expect in our lives and just in terms of our Web2 experiences. And just in terms of life, right? I mean, we're used to there being a kiosk in the airport where we can exchange dollars for euros for yen. So there is a particular blockchain platform, and I am going to just fully admit I am biased because, again, when we think about what we're trying to do, we're trying to bring people along. So we want to bring people into places where it's an easy step into Web3 from a financial standpoint. The other thing you've got to remember about blockchain, especially Bitcoin and Ethereum, is they are horrible for the environment. What it costs on a transaction between fees And then just the energy it takes to calculate and process that transaction. One Ethereum transaction is like the equivalent of powering the average U.S. house for eight days. And Bitcoin, the kilowatt hours on that are more equivalent to like two and a half months of power for that same house. For a transaction. For a single transaction. And again, we're coming from the art world. We work with a lot of artists, you know, and they they tend to ride more on social justice and social impact. I've got a couple of artists who are flat out saying, no, I won't do NFTs. No way. Because of that environmental impact. So there is work that's happening right now in this blockchain space to create a blockchain platform that could accept all currencies Mm -hmm. and be interoperable. And there's one really good one out there. It's called Stellar. So the Stellar Development Foundation, it's the Stellar platform and their token is XLM. But on that platform, It has the potential you can use Bitcoin, you can use Ethereum, you can use good old fashioned government currency, you can use your credit card. You don't even have to buy crypto to transact on Stellar. 
Again, we're still really early on the developments of these things, but those are Stellar is an example of what I think is coming next, which is we need platforms that are going to be intersectional with these different cryptos and make it easy for, again, those Web 2.5 people who want to start getting into NFTs, but they're not quite ready to set up a wallet. It gives them a place to get started. For right now, if you want to get in, right, if you've heard about an NFT and it's on OpenSea, for example, you're shaking your head at me. (laughs) I just think it's the worst brand name in the world. What happens in the OpenSea? You're lost. Yeah. No one can find you. You're in danger. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I think I think it's true. I think it's very hard to find things on OpenSea, to search things, yeah. even when you know what they are. It's difficult. But let's say, you know, we want to buy an NFT. You bet. Do we need a MetaMask wallet or a Coinbase wallet? Or, you know, how? Yeah. what's the easiest way to actually get in and do this today? This is how I started. So I went to Coinbase last year. I liked Coinbase because the user interface and experience for me was very similar to what I've seen like on a Fidelity app or other financial apps. And so it was very comfortable. And I looked at it and said, okay, I'm going to buy some Ethereum. And it's a great place because you can get pretty much every currency that's out there. Right. I used my credit card and I bought Ethereum. Now, I think everybody needs to be really mindful of where the price is you know, day in and day out. And I check my Coinbase account like five times a day, you know, and we're looking right now, one Ethereum is about 3000 US dollars. If you want a Bitcoin, you're basically going to say no to a brand new car mm-hmm. in order to get a Bitcoin because it's like around forty, forty-five thousand dollars $45,000 for one Bitcoin. But you also have some of the lower price ones like XLM, which is on Stellar that I mentioned. You can buy that through Coinbase. But essentially, you bring your credit card or I think you can use a debit card if you want to pull it from your direct from a bank account. You can use that to purchase that. That establishes for you an account that you have. Then you're able to pull from that account to set up a wallet. So if you want to use Coinbase wallet, for instance, which is what I use, you can connect that to Coinbase. If you want to use MetaMask, you can do that. There are endless numbers of wallets that are available out there. And again, I think it's a question of interoperability, but let's say you're interested in Ashley Longshore. She's an artist who currently has a drop on OpenSea. Fantastic pop abstract artist out of New Orleans. I love her. I just wanted to interject. <gasps> oh, thanks, obsessed. Catherine. You're obsessed. Totally obsessed. I'm totally obsessed with her too. And I'm a collector of her work. And I'm actually going to New Orleans this weekend and I'm stopping at her studio and I can't wait. Amazing. So let's say you're going to go to OpenSea and you want to get one of the Ashley Longshore drops that she did with Meta Golden. And this is also something, Jean, we haven't discussed, which is the utility of an NFT. Like, what do you actually get once you buy it? And in the case of this Ashley Longshore NFT, it has gold jewelry tied to it. So if you purchase the NFT, you get a piece of gold jewelry that you can actually wear in real life. That's the the connection Ashley Longshore had with Metagolden. Metagolden is this great women-owned, women-artist-focused Web3. And what they do is they do NFT drops that have unlockables of gold jewelry built into them. So you go to Coinbase, buy your Ethereum, and you zip on over to OpenSea, and you've got your wallet, and you go in and you transact. But here's the thing, 
the complexity that has been built into using wallets is ridiculous. It is ridiculous. Yeah, we're so used to face ID nowadays, if not, you know, your thumbprint or something else. You have to remember these like massively long passphrases and keywords to like secure your wallet. And they have to work on that. This is where you start to tell that this has been really built by the guys who, and I use guys loosely, the developers. Yeah. When I opened my Coinbase wallet, because I did exactly what you just described, we did a show on crypto and our guest, Bill Ullman, said, go to Coinbase, open an account, start funding it with automatic deposits once a month by a small amount of a couple of currencies and see how it feels. Go visit it. See how mm-hmm. see how you feel when it goes up and it goes down. Don't put more than one or two percent of your assets into this. Like test the waters and do it slowly. And then I went back and I opened my wallet. And just like you said, they give you this five word password that they say don't write it down, but remember it. <laughs> what are you supposed right? to do? Yeah, exactly. No. <laughs> Exactly. Like hide it in your underwear drawer. I, I don't know exactly what you're supposed to do with it, but but I understand what you're saying. And I also think that that point about what do you do with it is an important one, right? I mean, if you buy a piece of art, are you going to get a piece of art for your wall or not usually? That's why I think smart contract terms are so important. So I'll give you an example. We just did an NFT drop this morning. So this is Alice Riot and Kate, my co-founder, donated the rights to one of her original works of art to Artable for the NFT. So she waived all of her rights from a royalty standpoint to the NFT. And the way we wrote out the smart contract terms for this is that there will be 100 NFTs of this painting, and it's called Mina, M-I-N-A. And Mina is Kate's dog. And she created this painting in 2020 during the pandemic. And it it kind of speaks to the melancholy nature of what that was like being, you know, isolated and closed in from everybody else. But just also how much joy she had from having that companion with her during that time. It's crazy. It's a crazy little painting she did. But she waived the rights to that. So the way we set up for this NFT, it's available on the Blue Marble. And the Blue Marble is an NFT marketplace that is focused on social impact causes. So they're very interested in how do we do social and environmental impact through Web3. That was the reason we selected them for a partner. We set up the smart contract terms on these 100 NFTs. So they are numbered limited edition prints of Mina. So you get NFT number three, you have limited edition print number three. 100% of the proceeds, this is what we put in the smart contract terms. 100% of the proceeds from the first sale go to Artable. They're a 501c3. They're the world's largest professional association for women who work in the visual arts. So women who work as gallerists, art dealers, auction houses, museums, that's their professional association. Artable gets 100% of the primary sale, but also built into that smart contract is that any secondary sales into perpetuity, they get a 50% royalty. Now, someone would say, well, what's in it for me then if I buy that? If I have to give up 50% of my secondary sale, what's in it for me? What's in it for you, which is also the utility of the NFT, is that you're supporting a good cause. 
you're buying this NFT because you want to support art table programming. You want to see more women art leaders. And in turn, you're going to see better outcomes for women artists by doing that. So that's how we establish that NFT. Now, what are your rights if you buy that NFT? And we spelled it out. You have rights for personal use. You want to print out a museum quality print of this NFT because it's a high-res scan. It's a museum quality scan and you want to hang it on your wall, you can do that. You want to print it on a mug, go for it. You want to put it on a digital display, have at it. What you can't do is commercially sell it somewhere. You have to actually get Artable's permission first. And if Artable says yes, what we put into the smart contract is that their 50% royalty stays in place. So Gene, if you bought the Mina NFT and then you decided to go to Target, to sell it to them because you think it would be really great to see this like on a pillow or something. Art Table would have to give you permission to do that and they would get a 50% royalty. Okay. That comes as part of the terms of using I get art. it. I get it. I mean, it's becoming much, much clearer. I think there is so much here to unpack that we could really talk about it for hours. But mm -hmm. as we sort of wrap up our introduction to this... What's the big risk? What's the big downside? I think the I think the biggest risk someone can have right now in this space is letting your FOMO drive your decisions. Having a fear of missing out, buying into hype. I mean, there's a phrase in this space called pumping. And when you hear about pumping for an NFT drop or for a platform launch or whatever, that's the developer speak in terms of let's really get everybody excited and build as much value as possible. I mean, we have everything being driven right now in this space. I have been in chat rooms on Telegram and Discord where I am just floored because I'm like, you guys don't have the first idea of what art is. You don't know what marketing is, but they have created an environment where they create so much FOMO and they see themselves as these big players, these investors. And I'm like, no, you're not. It's you're a Wall Street term. I mean, adopters. it's it's pump and dump. That's what you're talking yeah, about. It's pump. Exactly. I mean, this is penny stocks all over again. It is. They're like day traders. Like I said, there are some really great players who are now kind of coming up and saying we need to build something better than this. So I brought up the Blue Marble, for instance. There's another one launching in a couple of weeks called Fimi Market, F-I-M-I. -I. And Fimi means for me in Jamaican. And so it is an NFT marketplace that is specifically built for Black diaspora, women, and artists of color. Because right now, what you see out there is really built for the white guys. And they're like, we need more options out there. And so the thing I also love about these partners, and we're working with Femi Market, we're working with the Blue Marble. There's another great one called Lightmint. And Lightmint comes out of the gaming world. So they're entirely focused on interoperability, which is really cool. But the thing I like about all of these partners is that they're not pumpers. They're like, we're going to build this right. And we're thinking about user experience and how do we bring people along? And I think that would, to me, is the biggest risk is to just jump into something because you had FOMO and you had to get in on something. And then you have no idea why you have a wallet or this NFT or what it means to you. And you don't know what to do with it. So much to think about. Kelly, this is a great initial education. Thank you so much for doing this with us. Thank you for sharing your experience and your knowledge. And I'm going to go check all of these projects out. So thank Please you for do. being here today.
Absolutely. And please know, too, that everything's got glitches and hiccups in them because it's technology, including our NFT drop today has not gone perfectly. So I need to go back now and fix some problems. You know what? In a strange way, that's kind of a relief. Thank you, Kelly Grayler from Alice Riot. We'll be right back with Catherine and your mailbag. Just a reminder to everyone that we are grateful for the support of BCU. BCU is one of the nation's fastest growing credit unions and a supporter of Her Money and the Her Money podcast. BCU helps members make smart financial decisions by offering the products and services and caring support that their members need for whatever stage of life they're in. If you have been thinking, hey, maybe it's time for me to find a credit union, you can find out if you're eligible to join BCU by visiting BCU. Dot org. And her money's Catherine Tuggle is with me now. Hey, Catherine. Hey, Jean. So I have to ask, do you have an NFT? I do not have an NFT. <laughs> I do have an NFT wallet because I've been sort of struggling with this process. I mean, what she said is hard, right? It's complicated. Right. It's not like hooking your credit card up to something to make an automatic payment. It's just harder than that. And so I did find an NFT that I wanted to buy and I set up my wallet and then I got all caught up in the authentication process, right? It, it asked me for like double, triple. I felt like you know, so many back and forth things. And you know me, I get lost in my own password maze. And so I didn't buy it. I'm going to buy it. And I'm not going to say what it is because I don't want somebody else to buy it. But (laughs) but it, it just, I don't know. I got frustrated and I think I went to make dinner is the answer. It's the honest answer. I mean, it's, it poses interesting questions about the barrier to entry as an investor, right? Like we want our investments to be easy. We always talk about the beauty of automation and having everything happen in the background so you don't even have to think about it. So it's interesting to come across an asset class wherein so much effort has to be made. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. I think that's right. And I think only a small percentage of people will be willing to stare down those roadblocks in order to make it happen at this point. But I liked what she said about platforms that will allow you to pay with a variety of types of currencies as well as cash. That makes sense to me. This, you can only buy it with one currency, did not make any sense at all. It's such a deep rabbit hole. Yeah. I want to make sure we've got time for some questions. Can we dig in? Yeah, I'll start with a follow-up from a listener. This is the listener who scored the 92% raise. You can hear Mm, her mm -hmm. original question on episode 302, Get Hired in 2022. So if you want to hear her original question, you can go back to that episode. But she followed up with us and she said, Jean and Catherine, I was just getting ready to email you. I finished the episode just 30 minutes ago. Thank you so much for the advice, congratulations, and support. I will definitely be diligently tracking my accomplishments and the like, and I'm going to save the episode to re-listen to in a year's time. And don't worry, Jean, maxing my 401k is on the top of my mind. I won't be maxing it immediately as I'm undergoing a second round of IVF this spring after our first round unexpectedly failed. This required us to have saved a lump sum of around $20,000. But once we're pregnant, that 401k contribution will be maxed. In the meantime, I'll still be maxing my Roth IRA, HSA, and contributing to my 401k up to the employer match. Thank you again, Rachel. 
Oh, Rachel, well, I'm so glad that you followed up with us and I have my fingers and my toes crossed for this second round of IVF. I know that it could be a really tough and really expensive journey. So both Catherine and I are thinking all good things for you and please keep us posted. Definitely. Our question today comes to us from Natalie. She writes, Dear Jean and Catherine, I just recently discovered your podcast. Well, admittedly, I just recently got into listening to podcasts and I really appreciate all the advice you share. I remember loving your articles in Money Magazine back in the day, Jean. My question is this. I opened You Promise 529 college savings accounts for both my children years ago, but we haven't been able to put too much into them. My investment choices have done well, and my daughter's account has about $7,000 in it. She just turned 17 and is taking dual credit classes at community college to fill her prerequisites and plans on attending the same community college for her chosen career. Currently, the money is in a more aggressive portfolio, and I wonder if I should move it to something less aggressive so she doesn't lose what she has so far. She's getting close to finishing high school in May of 2023. I could move some of it into a moderate portfolio, 50% equity, 46% fixed income, and 4% money market, but I'm also looking at the SPDR Dow Jones REIT ETF portfolio. Do you have any suggestions on what allocation I should change it to, or should I change it at all? If you do suggest a change closer to college, at what point do you suggest doing it? My son is almost 14 and has the same allocation right now. Thank you so much for all your great advice. Well, thank you so much for writing, Natalie. You know, this is a question that I've heard a couple of times recently. You know, these 529s give you typically age-based portfolios, but then there's a conservative option, a moderate option, and an aggressive option. And what I did for my kids is to move the money as they switched schools. So had the money in the aggressive option when they were in elementary school, I moved it to moderate as they were in junior high, which a lot of people I think would have said is a little bit too soon, but I did. And then I moved it to conservative as they entered high school. I would move your daughters to a more conservative portfolio in high school. You mentioned the Spider Dow Jones REIT ETF portfolio. That's a real estate investment trust portfolio. I would probably just move it to the more moderate option that's 50% equity, 46% fixed income, and 4% money market, if not the even more conservative one, because she is so close to heading to college. And I would moderate your son's a bit as well at this point because it's so aggressive. And the last thing that I would say is don't beat yourself up about the fact that there's not that much in them at this point. You've saved for college. You're continuing to save for college. You will, as many parents do, I'm sure, pay for some of college out of current cash flow that may require tapering off on your own retirement contributions for the time that your kids are in college to some degree. And this is all something that we do hand in hand with the strategies of having our kids apply to colleges that really want them, casting a wide net, and being smart about the value proposition in college, making sure that they have maximized their opportunity to capture 
not just as much need-based aid, but as much merit-based aid as they possibly can. If you haven't listened to it yet, I would just suggest going back and listening to our last interview with Ron Lieber, who wrote the book, The Price We Pay for College. He really, really dove in to the whole world of financial aid and how to get the most out of it. And I think that would be a great conversation for you to have at your fingertips as you fill out the FAFSA with your daughter. But thank you so much for the question and good luck. And thanks for listening. I'm glad you're enjoying it. Thank you so much, Jean. And for anyone wondering, that episode with Ron Lieber is episode 254, College Costs, Navigating, Negotiating, and Knowing How Much to Spend. And thank you, Catherine. In today's Thrive, if you're less than satisfied with your job and you found yourself a little more intrigued by reports that job changers are getting an average salary bump of 23%, you might be considering joining the great resignation yourself and heading out for greener pastures. But of course, quitting can be really hard, even if you hate your job. You've got the anxieties of talking to your boss, saying goodbye to coworkers, and needing to prove yourself all over again. At HerMoney.com, we broke down the things that you have to do before quitting your job. First on the list, start by asking yourself the really hard questions because deciding to leave a job is a big decision and that means getting real with yourself. Ask yourself, am I ready to make a big change in my life? Am I willing to start over somewhere new? Don't panic if you don't have the answers right off the top of your head, but do break out your journal and see what your gut is really telling you after you noodle it for a while. Second, create a plan with a safety net. How much do you need to have saved before you can comfortably quit? If you don't have a new job lined up already, it may be that you need to stay a little longer or perhaps find a side hustle that can tide you over for a bit. Third, use your benefits while you can. If you already paid your deductible for the year on your current employer's health plan, then schedule as many necessary doctor's appointments as you can before you quit. Or Make time, if it's been a while, to see a dentist or a dermatologist. Make those appointments ASAP. And finally, don't leave the retirement funds that you've worked so hard to accumulate behind. If you've never left a job where you've been accumulating funds for retirement, it can be pretty intimidating to feel like you're walking away from a 401k, but you're not. Those funds that you contributed are yours. When you leave, you take them with you and you can either roll them into another 401k or an IRA of your choosing. Just make sure you talk to a financial professional, either your current plan administrator or the new one because if you don't roll the 401k over correctly, there's a chance that you get hit with early withdrawal penalties or taxes. A big thank you for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks so much to Kelly Grayler for sharing this guide on all things NFTs and what the digital art landscape really looks like in 2020. If you like what you hear on this show, I hope you'll subscribe at Apple Podcasts. Also, please take the time to leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. And while you're at it, forward the show 
forward it to a friend, share it with a friend, somebody that you think would like it as much as you do. We'd also like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk soon. Thank you.